Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, September the 9th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Coming up uh, later on in our program, we'll be bringing you our Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the earthquake uh, in the North African state of Morocco, where over 1,300 people have been confirmed dead. The African Union has been admitted for full membership within the Group of 20, the G20 meeting uh, that is being held uh, in New Delhi, India. France is continuing to lose status in West Africa. We'll have details on that as well. And the Southern African region uh, is working to halt ozone depletion. In the second hour, we look in detail at the recent decision to admit the African Union as a member of the Group of 20. We then examine the recently held Africa Climate Summit held in Nairobi, Kenya. Finally, we acknowledge the 60th anniversary of the racist bombing of the Birmingham 16th Street Baptist Church, which killed four African-American girls on September the 15th of 1963. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the music of Tony Allen. Uh, Let's listen in.
Check it out. Don't take the boat, Johnny. 
Thank you. 
Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, that was the music of Tony Allen uh, from the album entitled Film of Life. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Our lead story, of course, deals uh, with the current situation in the North African state of the Kingdom of Morocco. A rare, powerful earthquake struck Morocco, sending people racing from their beds into the streets and toppling buildings and mountainous villages and ancient cities not built to withstand such force. Uh, More than 1,300 people were killed and the toll was expected to rise as rescuers struggle earlier today to reach hard-hit remote areas. The magnitude 6.8 quake, the biggest to hit the North African country in 120 years, sent people fleeing their homes in terror and disbelief uh, late uh, on Friday. One man said dishes and wall hangings began raining down, and people were knocked off their feet. The quake brought down walls made from stone and masonry, covering whole communities with rubble. The devastation gripped uh, each town along the high atlas steep and winding switchbacks in similar ways. Uh, Homes folding in on themselves and mothers and fathers crying as boys and helmet-clad police carry the dead through the streets. Remote villages like those in the drought-stricken of Gone Valley were largely cut off from the world when they lost electricity and cell phone service. By midday, people were outside mourning neighbors, surveying the damage on their camera phones and telling one another, may God save us. Ahmed uh, Id Salah, a 72-year-old mountain guide, said he and many others remained alive but had little future to look forward to. That was true in the short term, with remnants of his kitchen reduced to dust, and in the long terms where he and many others lacked the financial means to rebound. I can't reconstruct my home. I don't know what I'll do. Still, I'm alive, so I'll wait, he said as he walked through the desert town, an oasis town looking overlooking red rock hills, packs of goats and glistening salt light. I feel heartsick, he said. Marquesh, uh, people could be seen on state television clustering in the streets, afraid to go back inside buildings that might still be unstable. The city's famous Kutubia Mosque, uh, built in the 12th century, was damaged, but the extent was not immediately clear. Its 69 meters, 226-foot minaret is known as the Roof of Marrakesh. Uh, Moroccans also posted videos showing damage to parts of the famous red walls that surround the old city, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. At least 1,305 people died in the quake, mostly in the Marrakesh and five provinces near the epicenter. Marrakesh Interior Ministry reported Saturday evening another 1,832 people were injured, 1,220 were critically injured, the ministry told the general public. You can read more uh, on uh, the situation in Morocco uh, by logging on to the Pan-African Newswire. In other news, uh, by helping the African Union earn a seat at the G20 table, India has emerged as a champion of the global south. The announcement that the AU will join the G20 comes as India and China are competing for greater influence. The group of 20 granted permanent membership to the African Union at its summit in New Delhi 
uh, just on yesterday. The 55 member states, six of which are currently suspended because they are under the rules of military governments that are not recognized by uh, the African Union. The African Union has become the second regional organization to join the G20 after the European Union, the EU. This membership, for which we have long been advocating, will provide a propitious framework for amplifying advocacy in favor of the continent and its effective contribution to meeting global challenges, unquote. African Union Commission head Musi Faki Mahatma wrote on the social media platform X, formerly known as Twitter, since India assumed the rotating presidency of uh, the G20 in December. Modi's government uh, has pushed for the international consensus on issues that affect uh, developing nations. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, France is the devil and all the unrest taking place is because of France. Ask me why. This is according to an article by Bobby Kwaku. They write that when Secretary of Guinea, uh, Conakry, triggered the abandonment of French independence, the French government ordered home 3,000 Frenchmen from the country. They were asked to take with them all their possessions and everything that was under French control in the country and destroying all that could not be moved. Among the things that were destroyed uh, across the country were schools, nurseries, buildings of public administrations, important national records and plans, cars, books, and medicines. The gigantic destruction covered also instruments of research institutes, tractors for agriculture, roads, horses, cows on farms were killed, and stored foods were burned or poisoned. In solidarity and as a concern for this horrible act against the people of Guinea, the president of Ghana at the time, Osajifu Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, had to offer 10 million pounds of Ghana's economic reserve to support Guinea in order that the country can survive this turmoil. The aim of this scandalous act was to send a clear message to all the other colonies about the consequences of France's rejection. The fact is that little by little, the fear seized the African elites. And after these events, no other country ever found the courage to follow the example of Secretary Ray, whose slogan was, we prefer freedom and poverty to opulence and slavery. For a newly independent country thereafter, it was necessary to find compromises with France. Sylvanus Olympio, the first president of the Republic of Togo, a small country in West Africa, found a solution likely to calm the French. Not wanting to continue to undergo French domination, he refused to sign the colonial pact proposed by de Gaulle, but agreed in return to pay an annual debt to France for the so-called benefits obtained during French colonization. This was the only condition for France not to destroy the country before leaving. However, the amount estimated by France was so large that the reimbursement of the so-called colonial debt was close to 40% of the country's budget in 1963. Consequently, the financial situation of just independent Togo was very unstable. In order to get out of this situation, Olympio decided to leave the monetary system set up by colonial France, the FC. F.A. Frank of the French colonial colonies of Africa and created the currency of their country. On January 13th of 1963, three days after he began printing the new bills, a squad of soldiers supported by France seized and killed the first elected president of independent Africa, 
Olympio was executed by an ex-French legionnaire, the sergeant of the army, Etienne Nassengbe, who at the same time received a bonus of $612 from the local French embassy for the success of his mission. Olympio's dream uh, was to build an independent and autonomous country, but the idea did not correspond to France's wishes. And you can read this article in its entirety uh, by logging on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire website. And finally, in regard to the Southern Africa region, representatives from various Southern African nations are currently convening in the Republic of Namibia for the National Ozone Unit and Customs 20 Workshop and Border Dialogue. The primary aim of this meeting is to discuss effective ways of controlling the trade of ozone-depleting substances. Namibia's Deputy Minister of Industrialization and Trade, Verna Sinimbo, said at the opening of the workshop Wednesday that the joint border dialogue is to strengthen cooperation between customs departments from the countries in monitoring the trade of ozone-depleting substances. Quote, this comes in light of the challenges that we are currently facing at our shared border post uh, in controlling and monitoring ozone-depleting substances as well as challenges with the different ozone depleting substances legislation and licensing and quota systems that need harmonization where possible, she said. With that, that we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding uh, this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and Global Affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go to our website, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal worldwide radio broadcast, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Journal blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. Uh, we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Just a pinch of personality From the Rotary Connection, uh, the track entitled Teach Me How to Fly. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast. And just this last past week, uh, major news uh, was that the African Union, as a bloc, uh, the 55-member uh, member state regional organization for the continent, has been admitted as a bloc into the Group of 20, G20, which met uh, this week uh, in uh, New Delhi. India. Let's listen to a report on developments at the G20. The African Union has become a new permanent member of the group of 20 countries. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi made the announcement on Saturday in an opening address at this year's G20 summit in New Delhi. Members of the G20 are gathering in India over the weekend. Other issues being discussed at the summit include increasing loans to developing nations by multilateral institutions and the reform of international debt architecture. Joe Jiashin has more from New Delhi. Well, we apologize for that. Let's look delve deeper, deeper and closer. We have Dr. Sizu Nkala, a political analyst and postdoctoral research fellow at the Center for Africa-China Studies, University of Johannesburg, joining us via Zoom from Johannesburg. Thank you and welcome to the program. The African Union has been admitted to the G20. What does this mean for the AU on the one hand and of course the G20 itself? Hi, good afternoon. Can, can you please repeat your question? Uh, well, we're talking about the AU, the, the, the AU being admitted to the G20. What are the benefits, of course, for Africa and compare that to the benefits to the G20 itself? 
Well, I, I think uh, the inclusion of Africa, I mean, in one of the world's most important uh, global policy-making forums is, is quite a big deal. Uh, so it, it, it means uh, it's, it's a recognition of the importance of Africa in terms of uh, shaping the future of global order. Uh, the importance of Africa in, in, in important uh, global uh, strategic global issues such as climate change, uh, immigration, uh, and, and then uh, peace and security. So it is quite a big deal for Africa because for a long time uh, Africa has been marginalized in these, uh, in these policy-making forums uh, that uh, whose decisions uh, have an impact on uh, the lives of people in Africa. Uh, so having an African voice and African representation there uh, is important. Uh, for, for the G20, I think it's, uh, for a long time it's been seen as, a, as an exclusive club a small group of nations that take decisions uh, that impact uh, on, on, other, on other countries. So adding uh, 1.3 billion people uh, on, on its table, I think it boosts, its, uh, it improves uh, its legitimacy and credibility uh, as, as a global leader. All right, Doctor, you say it's a big deal for Africa. So my question to you is how can the African continent take advantage of this and in what particular sectors can it take advantage of this? Well, I think there are, there are many opportunities for Africa to take advantage uh, of, of, of this membership uh, to, to, to the benefit of its people. Uh, firstly, I think uh, the G20 uh, is, is, is a large group uh, with, uh, with significant economic influence in the world. Uh, it, it's a group that controls I think 85% uh, of the world's GDP and 75% of its trade. So whatever it decides, uh, it, it certainly has a global impact. So Africa has an opportunity now to advance uh, its own interests, uh, which may include maybe climate change, uh, especially climate change finance. Um, uh, it also includes the reform of the international system, especially that of the uh, UN Security Council, uh, and the international financial system as well. I also include maybe immigration issues. Of course, Africa is at the center of uh, global immigration issues, uh, with most of its immigrants uh, falling victim to, uh, to, 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 to dangers along uh, the immigration journey. Uh, so it, these are issues that Africa can now bring uh, to the fore at the G20. All right, finally, Doctor, before we let you go, one final question. Uh, the G20 membership also comes with responsibilities. How will the AU play its part, given its structure and the nature of its own operations? How do you see it, Doctor? Well, that, that's, I think that's, that's the main issue uh, with the African membership of, of the G20, because uh, Africa is an intergovernmental organization. Uh, it's not a supranational organization like maybe the European Union. Uh, it, it, it depends on, on, on the consensus of its, uh, of its member states. So it, it's an organization that cannot really uh, take uh, independent decisions uh, without the consent of every member state. So decision-making and uh, positioning on issues uh, being discussed uh, at the G20 would be very problematic because African member states are diverse member states with, with diverse interests. Uh, you have uh, giants like Nigeria, uh, Ethiopia, or South Africa, 
and small countries like Swaziland or Lesotho, they have different interests. Uh, for them to adopt a common position is a challenge. We've seen this uh, in, in various global issues like uh, the Russia-Ukraine war, uh, or, or even the climate change uh, issue, uh, or, uh, or the Israel-Palestine conflict, uh, or even the military coups that are happening uh, currently in Africa. Uh, these countries rarely uh, agree uh, on, on, on these issues. So it will be interesting to see how, uh, how they work out uh, their G20 membership and uh, agree or arrive at a common position in terms of uh, issues discussed at the G20. So uh, I think what will have to happen is uh, they will have to devise a mechanism uh, through which maybe uh, Africa can, I mean the African Union uh, can uh, consult its, I mean the member states, agree on, uh, on, on issues before uh, they, go, uh, they go to the G20 summit. Uh, maybe in that way uh, the AU can be and that was a report on uh, the admission of uh, the African Union into the Group of 20 uh, at its meeting uh, this week uh, took place in New Delhi, India. Another major international focus uh, for this week was the Africa Climate Summit that was hosted by the Republic of Kenya uh, at the Kenyatta International Conference Center uh, in Nairobi. Uh, let's listen to a report on the African Climate Summit 2023. Welcome to the France 24 debate. I'm Marco in Africa. has been discussing how to save the planet. The first Africa Climate Summit just wrapped in Nairobi, Kenya, hosted by President William Ruto. There's been a heavy accent on how to find opportunities among the clear threats the modern world has made to our climate and our planet. Ruto stressed the word renewables. Here France 24, Oliver Farry with this. The curtain came down on the Africa Climate Summit in Nairobi on Wednesday. The host, Kenyan President William Ruto, hailed a conference at which Africa, after much wrangling, managed to reach a consensus and a groundbreaking declaration on climate change. As a continent, we have developed our common position, which encapsulates our ambition for socio-economic transformation and our climate action agenda. Russo also said that Africa was vital to the global fight against climate change and a helping hand should be tended to the continent. We demand a fair playing ground for our countries to access the investment needed to unlock the potential and translate it into opportunities. We further demand a just multilateral development finance architecture to liberate our economies from odious debt and onerous barriers to necessary financial resources. There was disagreement among states about the direction to take. Some, such as South Africa and Ethiopia, have made strides towards boosting renewable energies Others want to be able to continue to profit from their oil and gas resources. Speaking to France 24, the head of Nigeria's National Council on Climate Change said there's not a one-size-fits-all approach for the continent. The investment that we'll be doing, the main thrust for South Africa, for instance, is to avoid and replace coal. Whereas for, 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 for Nigeria, our main focus is to see that we phase out these diesel and petrol generators. So 
the investment pattern definitely has to be different. The declaration will form the basis for African countries' negotiating positions at November's COP28 summit in Dubai, a global forum where Africa has long complained it has not been given a fair deal. I understand the summit will take place from now on every two years. Africa contributes then the least in terms of pollution and greenhouse gases, but inversely suffers the most for the mistakes and the indulgences of the so-called advanced societies. Now, of course, Africa has the right to develop and to have the goods and products as people would like. But can we all move forward together, perhaps, and create a future that will leave a planet for our children's children to live on safely and healthily? Our panel to discuss all the issues related to the Climate Summit and what happens next uh, includes here in Paris, Sebastian Treyer, that's uh, the General Director of the EDDRI, which is the Institute of Sustainable Development and International Relations, an independent policy research institute, a multi-stakeholder dialogue platform that identifies the conditions and purposes, tools to put sustainable development at the heart of international relations and public-private policies. I hope that sums up exactly what Thank you do, you very sir. Much for that. No Pretty problem. Exact. Well, you're here, and let's give you the full billing as we need it. Thanks. On the other side of the studio, someone who needs no introduction to regular viewers of France 24. Douglas Yates has been a guest here since the very first day, I think, of France 24. It's always a pleasure to see you, sir. Uh, an expert on Africa, as we know, a professor of, uh, of political science at the American Graduate School, and it's always your great knowledge on Africa we call on when we need all matters discussed. We will be joined by guests uh, from Africa who uh, are being set up uh, as we speak, so I'll introduce them when uh, they are able to speak to us. So let's start here in the studio with, with Douglas and Sebastian. Gentlemen, your reaction to the fact this summit has actually happened and on what you think has come from it. Can I start with you, Sebastian? Yes, thanks a lot. I, I, I will really, uh, really want to stress that this is a success. Why do I say it's a success? Not so much because I agree with that, that all the uh, text of the declaration is sufficient, ambitious enough, etc., but because uh, the, the, what is really significant to me is the fact that African countries, African governments, and civil society, because they have been very present, are taking ownership and sovereignty over their own agenda and the agenda, the global agenda for vulnerable countries. And this is really important in the context where for, for years and for, for the last years, but even for decades, African countries have been saying, you, you say you listen to us, but you never listen to how we formulate the needs that we have. And to me, it was very important to see at the Paris, the, the Paris summit in June, uh, at the invitation by President Macron on a new financial pact between North and South, that President Ruto from Kenya said, well, thanks for having uh, opened the agenda. Now I take the ball. It's my agenda. It's our agenda as Africans. And let me tell you how we formulate the, the same issues, but with our own needs. And that's the most significant to me. So to take that image of taking the ball, Douglas, I mean, how do you see the game developing? Because clearly Ruto was talking about the fact that the, the developed nations who promised a, a lot a long time ago haven't quite delivered on that money-wise, mm. and certainly not in reducing uh, output of emissions. Africa perhaps in a position now to perhaps shape what goes forward? Do you see that as a strong possibility? Certainly the political success, gathering a unanimous vote in a multilateral forum is all to the credit of Ruto. To get that, he needed to have done the diplomatic work in advance. Um, as for where the ball goes next, well, um, the biggest multilateral forum on the issue is going to be the same challenge magnified. And it's not clear that the diplomatic work has been done there. So what uh, was the main fear? That uh, this was going to be greenwashing. That uh, societies like McKinsey 
we're using this multilateral forum as a vehicle for selling carbon credits. And for viewers who don't know, carbon credits are a way in which polluters can pay for their pollution. And that money can be channeled into development projects or into green projects. So that's, that avoids polluting countries actually making changes. They just It doesn't stop pollution. Fork out money. You know, exactly. Way. It's a way of buying your way out of pollution. And the big hosts uh, this year are oil-producing countries. That is, the countries that are, uh, whose entire economy is pres uh, premised mm. on carbon. On the other hand, uh, the way that Ruto managed to kind of uh, solve this Gordian knot of conflicting interests is he said, well, we can take that money and we can invest in solar energy. Or Comoro said, no, the blue economy. Okay, we can invest in tidal and wind and offshore wind. And, uh, and uh, Congo said, well, what about preserving the rainforest, which can absorb uh, carbon? And Nigeria said, well, Nigeria is very little on that, but maybe they'll try to reduce a little bit of their oil burning. Uh, but um, he was able to find a way that everyone could agree on the principle that that money, which was being accused of greenwashing, could be challenged into projects where Africa could make the energy transition. And, and I think that might have been behind this common uh, Ni Nairobi declaration. Okay, Sebastian, quick word before we bring in our first guest no, from Nairobi. Just, I, I think this, this issue of uh, carbon credits is a very contentious one. Yeah. I wanted to add to the criticism about uh, that it's an excuse for uh, polluters not to make the effort trying to mm -hmm. use Africa as a sink for carbon. Uh, I also believe that the amount of money that we can get out of it is too small. I mean, when you look at what the uh, Emirates have been proposing, I think they propose 45, uh, 400, 400 uh, uh, millions in carbon credits, but 4, mil, 4 billion in terms of investment in renewable energy. What is needed is more in the billion size than in the 100 million size. And mm -hmm. so these carbon credits, they also divert the attention from what matters. What matters is how to unlock the investment in sustainable development and sustainable energy in Africa for the industrialization of Africa. And the amount there is not so much about carbon credits. That can be a complement at some time in a project that lacks funding. But the main issue is the cost of capital for African countries, the, renew the interest rates are 14 to 20 percent in African countries for uh, renewable energy, a renewable energy project, Why they are 3 percent in the, in the West. And that's the big issue, not the carbon credits. Indeed, the Industrial Revolution started in Northern England, where I come from, in 1790. Mm. And ever since then, we've been contributing to the pollution of the world and creating what we have today. So it's, it's, all, it's all our fault. Maybe we should be taking more effort and making more effort to make things change and not just pay carbon credits, but actually sort of make some genuine change. Gentlemen, stay with us. Let's bring in our first guest from Nairobi, Augustin B. Njamnishi who's the co-founder and chair of political uh, and technical affairs of the Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance. Augustine, thank you for being with us. Welcome to the France 24 debate. I hope you can hear us. I don't know whether you've heard what's been said so far, but what I'd like to ask you to do first is to give us your sense of what the summit means, how the summit went on, what you think will happen next. Of course, you were there, obviously, listening to what was happening. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I think um, there are two principal things that I would like to talk about the summit. First of all, I agree with Sebastian, just the fact that African leaders could come together to discuss one thing, which is climate change, 
is very significant. For the last three decades, we have not had this. An all-African summit focused on climate change. So we had more than 22 heads of states and governments here. It shows, however, that Africa is taking climate change very seriously. And of course, they have no choice because the impacts of climate change are devastating on the continent more than ever before. The second thing is the fact that we have tried our best at this first initiative, which is this first African summit on climate change, to bring all the voices of the continent together. We from the Pan-African Climate Justice, leading the Non-State Actors Committee, started work since the month of March 2023, just to contribute to this summit. And we did wide range, uh, wide range uh, uh, consultations and many workshops and conferences just to contribute. However, however, um, the, the influence of some lobbies and strong forces cannot be ignored. We understand the pressure under which the host government and even our own other governments were under, and we uh, coming out with a declaration that is not totally, you know, reflecting the aspirations of Africans is something we cannot put it to the back burner because this is a start. And we think for the next summit that will come in two years, Africa will take charge, full charge, and roll it the way we want because this is a summit that was intended for Africans in Africa and by Africans. However, we've had some advantages here that we can come together and talk about climate change and climate change alone. Augustine, it's good to get things out in the open and it sounds like very much that has been the case. All the issues have been set out in front of everybody and you're starting to think about things in a serious way going forward. Augustine, bear with me, please. I'll get some comments from the gentleman here in the studio. We've got Douglas Yates uh, from the American Graduate School, expert in African politics and other African issues, of course. Sebastian Treya from the IDDRI, the Institute of Sustainable Development and International Relations. Sustainability, gentlemen. This is, this is the key, isn't it, surely, going forward. Sebastian. What I also wanted to put on, on the table, and I think what Augustine has said is extremely, extremely important, that we need to uh, continue the work, that the declaration is not, not perfect. What I wanted also to put on the, plate, on, the, on, the, on the agenda is that the next step is not only COP28 on climate. The next step is also the annual meetings of the World Bank and the uh, International Monetary Fund in Marrakech, first time in Africa in October, because a lot of what uh, President Ruto and the uh, colleagues from Africa, the governors of also civil society have been putting on the table is that it's actually the sustainability or the viability of development that is at stake. How will Africa be able to access investments for its own industrializations? Because there are so many needs of jobs and incomes for a growing uh, population that this is the main issue. And it's being challenged by climate change. But we can't, we can't have a separate discussion on development and on climate. It's all interconnected. And so the next steps are both COP28 and the annual meetings. And in that context, I think this summit was extremely important and goes beyond the climate discussion and sustainability being understood as a something that is just about the environment. It's really sustainability as the aspiration. I mean, uh, Agenda 2030, the uh, Sustainable Development Goals, they are about prosperity, industrialization, and the environment. And that's really at stake for, for Africa. That's also how we need to think of the next steps. Augustine was talking there about uh, the um, special interests, let's put it that way, people uh, trying to sort of put 
to get a certain agenda. I think you were hinting at perhaps some countries that, that, that produce a lot of petrol, that put a lot of petrol. These kind of moves may not be in their interests. Right. The, um, the, the pollution problem, which is effectively carbon emissions in the atmosphere. There are other things, but largely we can say the main problem are carbon emissions. Uh, is an integral part of uh, big business, and particularly things like the oil industry, energy industry, the military energy complex in some of these countries, and some of the very powerful regimes, influential actors in the Middle East and on the global scene. And those actors are not interested in changing the use of oil, and in some cases of coal or gas. Um, and so they're agents provocateurs, they're spoilers. This is a multilateral convention, and the danger for multilateral conferences are spoilers can come in. And, uh, and so what they would like to do is, in the negotiations, introduce what is seen as a compromise solution. We won't s stop producing oil and gas. We won't fundamentally change the global uh, warming that will happen because of that. But what we will do is we'll start to provide funding for investment in disaster relief, in alternative energies. We'll start to working, sort of applying Band-Aids to the problem. But ultimately what we need to do is go on a low carbon diet. And, and this is not on the agenda. Let's bring in Augustine again for a, uh, another comment on, on that issue. Augustine Njomishi, uh, who is from the Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance, joining us from Nairobi. Augustine, you were at the summit. You, you listened to what everybody had to say. You had your say too, I can well imagine. Um, do you have a sense among the people that you've spoken to that there can be this kind of inter, uh, internation, international cooperation within the continent to bring about the changes that are required? Yeah, I think, as I said before, uh, the fact that these African heads of states and governments came together to Nairobi to, to discuss climate change is already significant. It's a, sign, a good sign that Africa can at least talk amongst themselves. Uh, we just wish that for next time, the, the lobbies that were around to, you know, to push their own agenda should, uh, should give us the space for Africans to talk amongst themselves. Of course, we're not excluding anybody because we need everyone, you know, to put hands on deck to support climate action in this continent. And let me take this opportunity to say one thing. There has been this talk about Africa victimizing itself, that we should not talk about how Africa is, you know, the highest uh, uh, bearer of climate impact. Meanwhile, they have contributed the least. And... Um, uh, our answer is we are not playing victim. We are not playing victim because, one, we are victims, so we are not playing victim. <laughs> Somebody that plays victim is the person that wants sympathy for something. But Africa is not looking for sympathy. Africa is only asking for its rights because we have to solve the climate crisis. For instance, for a, a, a meeting that is of this magnitude, we would have thought that adaptation, loss and damage, would be the principal, you know, priority, the first on the agenda. Because what Africa needs for this moment is to build resilience and do adaptations to, in order to survive. All the communities, 
are going through a lot of difficulties. Floods, a continent that is flooding and burning at the same time cannot miss an opportunity to let the rest of the world understand. And when we are talking about these things, it's not a matter that we are begging. It's just that Africa has to be treated with respect and fairness and equity because we did not cause this problem, and it is urgent. Again, that said, we think African, this is just a summit. The action that will be taking place in all the other summits or meetings of the African uh, policymakers will be very critical because the African common position has been there since Copenhagen 2009, and we only are improving on it based on science and equity and fairness. We hope our heads of states and government will take this seriously. And just how they do it within their own countries is very important. Africa is already spending a lot of money on adaptation. A TFON report that was published in July this year or last year says that many sub-Saharan African countries are spending five times a budget for adaptation than they are spending for health care. It means Africa is dying to adapt. This should have been taken into consideration and highlighted in this summit. But anyway, this is a right step, a step in the right direction, and we hope it will be followed by action. There are so many things you're saying there, Augustine, which really we need to examine. It's phenomenal stuff. And what you said about a continent that's burning and flooded at the same time, um, there's a lot of obviously noise being made here in Europe about those same issues and in North America as well. And I'm, I'm reminded of the words of uh, Grasso Michel just before the start of the summit, the, one of the, the, the elders, the former, obviously the, the, the widow of, of the great Nelson Mandela, she said, well, what took you so long to wake up to these facts? We've been dealing with this for many, many generations. You know, so big, big problems there. Let me, before I let, let everybody loose again, just turn to this issue of renewables. There could be opportunities uh, for the greener future like renewable energy. Our report next will show uh, how this is already being used in some parts uh, of uh, Nairobi to keep perishable food fresh for market. They're powering fridges uh, by a renewable way. Once harvested, the days are numbered for these watermelons and avocados. In the sweltering tropical heat of this Nairobi market, bins of spoiled food go hand in hand with the mounds of fresh melons. The UN's Food and Agricultural Organization says between 30 and 40 percent of horticultural produce in sub-Saharan Africa spoils before it even gets to market. The major causes of post-harvest loss is how the produce is managed uh, immediately after harvest. Cold storage units like this one can help mitigate losses by keeping perishables cool, which also lowers the chance that farmers be exploited by brokers. Brokers say that they're coming to harvest, but they delay, spoiling our oranges. Delay. Founded four years ago, a company called Soko Fresh, which means market fresh in Swahili, has capitalized on this need for cold storage. It sells space in solar-powered mobile units. Serving some 12,000 farmers, it also buys perishables for larger distributors. With a spotty electrical grid in many remote farming regions, the fact that the cold storage units are solar-powered is both cost-effective and reliable. Solar energy is one of the free sources of energy that could reduce our operational costs. So we opted to use solar, uh, which enables us to deploy anywhere. 
Kenya derives 93% of its electricity from renewables, like solar energy. Using the blazing sun to its advantage, the company, which was set up in partnership with multiple NGOs and the World Food Program, has now expanded to help fish farmers keep their catch nice and cold. So, Monsieur with that report, Kenya then already making progress on that issue of renewables. Uh, before we talk more about that and about adaptation finance, because that line from uh, you, Augustine, was phenomenal about uh, actually spending more on, on adaptation finance than healthcare, so dying to adapt. It's a remarkable phrase. Sebastian, you had a word to add as Augustine was speaking. No, I, I was really struck by what, uh, what I was seeing was uh, answering your, your question on the victimization of, mm. uh, of, of Africa. I think what is really striking, what makes a difference and I understand Garza Machel was impatient, but now what is changing is that the world is considering Africa not just, it's not just the moral argument that is important. It's not just that Africa is a victim and a weak victim, it's that Africa has power. Because lots of the Western and Asian uh, powers are looking for uh, alliances that are stable, that can bring votes to the UN, that can bring opening new markets. Uh, Africa is an emerging market that matters. And it's also uh, lots of resources, so stable supply of resources is very important. So that gives a lot of power. And the last thing that I think is also beyond the only issue that there is, Africa is a victim, and that's important in moral terms. That would not give a lot of power. It's also the, co the consideration that African countries' debt, pro debt crisis, mm -hmm. debt problem, is actually a problem for world financial stability. That's quite new, and that makes the situation, the current situation of Ghana and Zambia, resemble a little bit more Greece and the EU. Uh, for the moment, the Ghanaian Minister of Finance is saying, my debt situation is even worse than everything. My, uh, the, my guarantees are better than Greece had, and you saved Greece, why don't you save me? I believe this notion that the debt problem in African countries is a world problem is now spreading, and that's, I think, what also gives a lot of power to the issues that are raised at this summit. Is this part of a kind of mindset that the established order has regarding Africa, this idea that, yes, you can bail out Greece, but you can't bail out Zambia. What do you think? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, the problems of Africa are, are part of global problems. And so economic problems in Africa are part of the global economic system. And what we've seen with um, the pumping out of trillions of U.S. dollars is a lot of credit was available. And as well with China making its entry into the African continent, it lent a lot of money to African regimes without really making good investments. Although it's important to build infrastructure, not if you can't, uh, if that infrastructure can't finance itself. And so, yeah, uh, bailing out Greece was necessary for European uh, stability, but Zambia? Why would uh, rich countries bail out Zambia? So we talk about debt relief. It's possible to make political gestures, but fundamentally the accumulated debt of Africa is not going to receive debt relief. It's going, there's going to be things on the margin. And uh, the political will's not there. I know. I can, I, can, I can sense, by the way, you're saying this. It, it hurts you to say those words, but they're not your words. It's the way the system is. And I would disagree on that just to say that uh, I agree that... It, for economists in Europe, the, the, the collapse of the, of the Zambian economy is not considered a problem. But I think it's an intrication between political and economic issues that make Zambia count. And in Paris, there was a deal made to, to bail out Zambia. So there is, there is something strong enough in political terms 
to make that change that is not macroeconomically significant. And mm. I think the intrication between macroeconomics and political issues makes Africa count much more than we thought before. Indeed. The potential is massive, obviously. The potential is massive in Africa. We all know that. But changing from fossil fuels to renewables, I, I, I did some research. We're talking not billions, but trillions of dollars required for that. Mm -hmm. Let's bring in Augustine again from uh, the Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance. Just reminding people who maybe are just joining us, Augustine uh, and Jamushi is at the the African Climate Summit in Nairobi and uh, co-founder and chair of political and technical affairs at the Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance. You said earlier that people are dying to transition and that was what you were talking about, sort of ad adapting and changing countries spending more on that than they spend on healthcare. Anybody hearing the words that you said earlier will think that can't be correct, but it's happening. So is it just a question of getting more money from donors? Is that what's required, sir? Tell us, tell us your, your view on it. I think it's um, a question of donors or, or, or northern countries, developed countries, you know, you know uh, uh, paying what they, they're supposed to pay for climate action on the continent. We cannot take a country that is already in debt and is suffering from the impact of climate change looking for scarce resources to adapt to climate change, while those who have caused the problem are still sitting there and saying, you know, we cannot escape this rhetoric. It is a fact. What we talked about renewable energy, yes, it is true. Africa has renewable energy potential. It will have massive amount of endowment of solar, hydro, and wind, and whatsoever. These things are not resources until we have used technology to make them energy. And who has that technology? It is not Africa, right? So it doesn't make sense if we only put this, these resources together or this endowment as an argument to say Africa must transition immediately. It has to transition immediately, of course, but with support from the developed countries. Do you, feel, do you feel, Augustine, that, sorry to cut across you, do you feel, Augustine, that the, the rich, developed world, let's put it that way, do you feel that they've been patronizing towards Africa in that sense? I'm thinking of the 2009 pledge to give something like $100 billion a year to help climate adjustment, to, to help the whole resolve the problems that we're living through now. Do you think basically the, 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 the rich nations have been not looking at Africa in a serious way, just basically paying lip service? I would... I would say they are paying lip service. Let's take these facts, these figures. Between 2019 and 2020, CPI figures say there was $632 billion in climate finance. Out of the $632 billion, only $46 billion was for adaptation, and then $15 billion was for dual purposes. It means mitigation has taken the better chunk of the money. Now, the priority of Africa is adaptation, but nobody is talking about this. And again, I will come to this summit. In Sharma Sheikh, article or paragraph 34 of the Sharma Sheikh plan of implementation is very clear. It says climate finance in vulnerable regions, especially Sub Saharan Africa, are better in grants. We thought that in a summit like this, this would be expansiated upon and let developed countries see how they will provide grants for this, because adaptation remains a priority of the continent. Article 9 of the Paris Agreement is very clear. 
climate finance is that finance that moves from developed countries into developing countries for, uh, for climate action, which means adaptation and or mitigation. And it, it goes further to say this finance should be predictable and meet the priorities of the, of the, uh, of the region. The African priority, first of all, is adaptation and building resilience. We are not seeing a lot of this. So uh, when we hear these announcements, what we call in the Pan-African Climate Justice, feel-good announcements. We've had a lot of announcements since Copenhagen up to today. At the end of the day, you don't see where the money is coming from or where it is even going to. Augustine, I need to stop you there and bring in our other guests to, to give us a kind of insight on that one. But this, this concept of yeah. the feel-good announcement, I think people are really resonating on what you were just saying there, that it is something that is said and it's not backed up with the hard sort of help and, 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 and money and, and, and contributions that people need, know-how technique, technology exchange, those kind of things. Augustine, bear with us, please. I'll bring you back in as soon as I can. Uh, Douglas, this issue is, is, is really... I think I'm getting a sense from Augustine that he and, and fellow Africans feel they've been sort of basically not hung out to dry, but kind of left to kind of just basically tread water rather than being helped to actually sort of really get to grips with what's going on. Right. Well, like you had said, um, the climate problems in Africa are related to the development problems. Mm -hmm. So um, there was an IMF report that was released just a little bit before this summit, which explained that Africans' fragile states are going to be the greatest casualties of climate change. When you have a country where rainfall agriculture is your principal source of revenue, things like drought or floods uh, destroy your economy. And it's the poor, the rural poor, who suffer the most. They're unlikely to receive a dime of this money that's going to be invested in solar energy and wind power. That money is going to go to African businessmen and middlemen and state rulers, but not to the African poor. Um, when they have flooding and crises caused by climate change, these states don't have the resources to actually respond. So people die, people starve. In the fragile states where you have conflict, this money is not going to go to conflict regions. No one's going to build a wind farm in, in northern Mali. Uh, and uh, so a lot of this money, the reason it's a workable solution is a lot of this money is going to go to the same places where the money's already going. But for many Africans, they're not going to see a dime of it. And that makes them bitter. And then that makes them perhaps falsely accuse this of uh, not being a solution. It's part of the solution. The energy transition in Africa is part of the solution. But Africa contributes very little to the carbon footprint of the world. So building solar energy in Africa is wonderful. That story of helping them in Kenya, mm -hmm. that's great on the micro level. But on the macro level, it's not African consumption that's contributing to global warming. It's the destruction of the rainforests and it's the production of things like oil. Nigeria flaring its gas at night. When you look at a satellite image, you see Europe lit up from electricity, and you see Nigeria lit up from gas flaring. A million barrels uh, of oil equivalent a day being flared into the air. That is a scary figure, Douglas. Mm. A million barrels a day just burnt, just burnt like that. 
It's absolutely crazy. I'm thinking of, of, of people I've met in Botswana. I've been there a couple of times for, for France 24 who are trying to create via the Internet and via, via web technology and the tech sector, create a relaunch for the country in a different way, looking at a different solution going forward, a different way of doing things. That's what Africa needs, isn't it? That kind of, that kind of uh, invention, that kind of drive in that sense. And Dumelang to everybody in Botswana, by the way, who I know will be watching. No, I, I think uh, I, I just wanted to say that uh, what I like in the affirmation of, uh, by, particularly by the Kenyan players, that renewable energy is the solution. It's not because it's decarbonized. It's because for rural areas, you have these types of solutions that we saw that can be extremely well developed without being connected to the grid, and that makes them easier to develop, and that can enable to have cold, uh, the cold chain in rural areas and thus triggering a little bit more of added value capture locally than has. So there is a lot of potential. I don't, I'm not saying that in conflict areas this is going to solve anything. I'm just saying that there is a smart idea behind that when it's really developed with the innovation potential of those who know the field and how it's going to be developed. The second thing that I... So, so I'm, I'm really in favor of that because I think for rural areas in particular there is a lot, a lot of potential. My second point is to really concur with Augustine that for adaptation you need grants and not loans. And that's a lot of money that we need to discuss about how much can we add to the existing capital of the grant part of the World Bank, the IDA, not the IBRD, sorry for the acronyms, I will not develop them, but the grant part, not the loan part of the World Bank. And that needs a lot of money there. And I, I don't see a lot of Western countries saying I'm going to, I'm going to put more money there. Okay. And that's a key question. Yeah. That's why also William Ruto, the Kenya president, is saying we need to look at the international fiscal regime and find taxation money to, to get more public money for those grants. A we're carbon getting, tax. Yes. Hmm. We're getting that message loud and clear in spite of the acronyms. Don't you worry about that at all, <laughs> Sebastian. Extremely clear. Let's bring in Augustine once again from Nairobi. Augustine uh, Njamashi, who is from the Pan-African Climate Justice, Justice Alliance. Augustine, your contributions so far have been really, really provocative and great. Um, I hope you were able to listen to what the guys here were saying in the studio. Um, in terms of the call that President Ruto made in order to change the way banking is done, world banking is done with Africa. Do you see that as something that is essential for the next steps going forward to help Africa begin to unleash its potential, but also make the changes necessary to create that greener future? Absolutely. I think uh, the call from President Ruto is very, very important. You know, you can't fix a problem with the same mindset that created it. For us to succeed and to solve the climate crisis, there's a need for an overhaul of the way uh, business is being done, especially by the institutions like the World Bank. So we think uh, that call is very loud and clear. And, but the question is, will, they, will that bring any change? Will, will, is it possible? And I think if the international community has the will, the good will to change things, they will do it. I will want to give an example of something that has happened in the past few years. Climate crisis has been there. It is not something that is new. It's only increasing in speed and in, uh, you know, in the, the wideness of the damage. But uh, we know that on this continent, many people are dying from climate impact related activities. Um, when COVID came a few years ago, in the few months that came, uh, you know, came by, we could see that the world mobilized a lot of money 
And a vaccine was discovered in record time. And we are now dealing already, COVID may soon become something of the past. If we had that goodwill, if we had that goodwill as far as climate change is concerned, we'll not be talking about climate change the way we are talking now. For 27 good years, we've negotiated. In fact, those of us who have been in this for this number of years, we keep being asked the question, why do you always go to those negotiations and come back empty-handed? Does it mean that the international community does not understand that climate change is already devastating Africa? The woman on the farm in Cameroon, the woman, the pastoralist in Kenya, they need to see something. And I, I'm happy with one of the uh, speakers who said, how the money gets to... Augustine, uh, and Jamishi there from the Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance cut off in the middle uh, of a great point he was about to make there. And uh, let's bring in our guests here in the studio, Douglas Yates from the uh, American Graduate School and Sebastian Treyer from the Institute of Sustainable Development and International Relations. Augustine, they're talking about how people go to summits, come back empty-handed. That's the kind of perception that has to change, isn't it, I think, because it's a question now, and I think it's something he was getting towards, the point he was getting towards making. This is Africa's moment to really sort of take, take the ball by the horns and really shape what happens next. Sebastian, would you agree? Yes, I do agree. I'm not very optimistic about COP28 being the right framework for being less empty-handed, because what is going to be discussed there are uh, how do we go beyond the 100 billion that were promised while we actually need not billions, but trillions. And that's why I was putting the emphasis on the fact that we need to also look at the World Bank and IMF reform, because this is another part of the equation. Not very optimistic there either that we find a solution by October in Marrakesh, but I believe there is a lot of attention to be done that the, the mere fact that we have a lot of money for Greece or for COVID in Western countries, US, or, uh, but also even China uh, and, and Europe, we need to do the same for Africa, for the debt problem in Africa. And this is something that needs to change. Uh, I hope a little bit more of the, the global context about this new financial pact between North and South than the COP28 on climate specifically. Indeed. So, uh, sorry, Augusta made the point about uh, COVID's effect on Africa. And uh, Douglas, the, the, the issue there as well, you could talk about COVID's effect on Africa, the Ukraine war effect on Africa too. It's all, it seems whatever happens, Africa is the one that seems to pay the price. Right. Um, the lower level of development means that they pay higher rates for interest. It means that their costs of basic goods suffer more for inflation. Africans spend more on their food budget than do other regions of the world. When food prices increase, Africans pay more. Although they're great producers of raw materials, all those raw materials are processed in the developed world and sold back to them. So they tend to not actually benefit from raw materials because they don't process them. Uh, everything seems to accumulate to these problems. But uh, where this process, the Nairobi Declaration, could make a contribution is if they could concentrate their attention, they could get a carbon tax. And that would be something right now only 24 countries implement any kind of carbon tax. It's very unpopular among consumers. So in democracies, people don't want to see their price at the pump more. It's extremely unpopular on oil exporting nations because it lowers consumption of their principal goods. But a carbon tax is a fair way to distribute the costs and perhaps then provide a resource for African 
to, uh, development to advance and make the energy transition? It is something that what, every, everybody individually could make happen, or, or do, you, do you sort of listen to what John Kerry says, the, the U.S. presidential envoy on climate change, who was at, who was at the summit? He said that it's, it's not something that governments can change. It needs more than that. It needs private sector involvement. It needs all those issues. Passing it on to consumers at the pump is not going to work. But passing it on to the global oil corporations ah. who are making record profits at this time is very feasible. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree. And, and uh, President Trudeau, in a, in a former version of the declaration, the Kenyan presidency of this summit has proposed also a tax on financial transactions. So there are lots of ideas where we could really get at the at grips with what Trudeau was calling a very unfair financial system globally. Sebastian Trier, Director General of the Institute of Sustainable Development and International Relations. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Thank you. thank you to Douglas Yates, Professor of Political Science at the American Graduate School. As always, thank you, sir, for being with us. Thank you to our guest from Nairobi, Augustin Mdomushi from the Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance. Augustin, we lost you in the middle of your last answer. I'm sorry, sir, I couldn't come back to you, but thank you for your contribution. It was much appreciated. Uh, we didn't get our fourth guest, sadly, from Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, Ahmad Pate Seni. Uh, but uh, we hope we've provided you with a good discussion about what happened at the summit and what happens next uh, for Africa and for the world. Stay with us here. This is uh, France Van Kat. More news. Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcasts, and that was an analysis of the recently held Africa Climate Summit 2023 the inaugural conference uh, held in Nairobi, Kenya. And we'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. I'm out of stories. I just love this air. I'm going to be in it with you. Yeah, because that's what it is, you know? I trust you guys. My agent's like, I mean, it's been over 20 years now. My agent's like, you got to work on your banter. No, I'm really trying. There's two parts of my brain, and I'm a little loopy when I'm singing. You probably don't want me to talk too much. So I'm going to try to do what you brought me to Thank mm-hmm. you. 
Legendary Liz Wright uh, performing at the Detroit Jazz Festival just last weekend with her cover of the Neil Young composition, Old Man. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for this early morning hours of Sunday, uh, September 10th, 2023. Uh, We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Coming up this week will represent the 60th anniversary of the horrific uh, racist Ku Klux Klan engineered bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, that resulted in the deaths of four African-American girls. We're going to listen to a speech uh, in the aftermath of that incident by African-American novelist, essayist, public intellectual James Baldwin, speaking in New York City. Let's listen in. Good evening. I hope that nobody will think I'm copying a plea if I say I'm a little tired. And so if you can't hear me up there, you have to let me know. Now, before I begin, let me say this. I have set arbitrarily, I have set us the somewhat delicate task of discussing our common trouble tonight. That is, there are some things that I want to talk about, to suggest to you, and then I want to find out what you think, and perhaps we can establish a dialogue, and if we are extremely disciplined and hard-headed, passionate and moral, we might be able even to rock that rock which is called Washington. I don't think, I know in fact, that when this meeting was envisioned on the 28th of August in Washington, when Bayard suggested that we ought to um, have some kind of open discussion about what follows the Washington March, obviously Bayard, neither Bayard nor I nor any of you suppose that less than four weeks later, we would be representatives of a nation which is, or which certainly ought to be, in mourning. Now, I have to say some very reckless things tonight, and so I want to make it absolutely clear that I am talking for myself. I am not I might be at other platforms and other occasions more or less representing this or that organization or this or that committee, but tonight I am talking to you as Jimmy Baldwin, who was born in Harlem 39 years ago, who has a certain responsibility to the people that produced him, that is all of you, and I'm speaking to you 
if I may say so, not as an organizer, and not as a Negro leader, and not as a public figure, not as any of those things, but as one of the poets that you produced. We have to talk about economics tonight, and in some detail, we must talk about morals, and I think in some detail, and we must talk about something even more difficult to put one's finger on, which for the moment we will call morale, and the assumption on which I am speaking is this, that whether or not we like it, we have reached a point, black and white in this country, where all of the previous systems of communication, negotiation, accommodation has become unusable. To discuss the economics first, a few days ago, it was suggested by some of us as forcefully as we knew how that in order for the country to be unable to ignore and to forget the slaughter of six children in an American city and in order to join the issue and bring the battle to where the battle really is, that is to say, to strike at the economic structure, that no one, black or white, should buy any presents for Christmas. I think that we should spell this out perhaps a little more precisely. I mean, and now I'm speaking for myself, that in this Christian nation, Christmas is mainly, as indeed are most churches, a commercial endeavor, having nothing whatever to do with the birth or the death of Christ. That if one begins to serve notice, ultimately on the banks, that we, the citizens of this country, do not consider that we have the right to celebrate Christmas this year, and that furthermore, we will use every weapon in our power to force this on the attention of the American Republic, which unluckily, I have to say, has its conscience mainly in its po pocketbook. I believe that we will begin to see some notion of our potential power. Let me put it this way. Before this country was established, when the country was being established, and this apart from what one's textbooks say, and in contradistinction to the television myths about the building, the discovery of America, the people who came to America, as it turns out, were neither heroes, saints, nor pilgrims. They were simply people who couldn't make it where they were. And that is why they came.
They came here to make, as we like to say, a better life for themselves and their children. And as it turned out, and as it always does indeed turn out, what they meant by a better life for themselves and their children was the opportunity to make more money and oppress somebody else. Which is what they did. The Indians had vanished, except for those we have under protective custody. <laughs> and in order to build the country, it was necessary to find a source of cheap labor. And therefore, 400 years later, I represent the only man who never wanted to come here. But if I had not come under the double coercion of the Bible and the gun, I very much doubt that we would have all those railroads and cotton would never have become king and in short the American economy would be at best a very different matter. Now if we had the economic weight to line the track and dam the rivers and hold the cotton and also raise the children, we can now use that weight for the first time for ourselves and for the liberation of this country. It is not true that there is nothing Negroes can do to help themselves, A, and B, it is not true that we, this nation, must be perpetually blackmailed by our government. The government represents us. And finally, See, neither is it true, as so many of the Negroes' friends would have us believe, that the only terms on which we can move to freedom are the terms of Harry Ashmore or Harry Golden. We, the people, are responsible for our own freedom. We are not begging for it. It is up to us to take it. <laughs> Mr. Livingston said a little earlier, something I would like to paraphrase. He said, quoting a friend of his in Birmingham, the only thing worse than being black in Birmingham is being black and white together. But I would like to paraphrase that a little bit speaking now of morality, 
that the only thing worse these days than being a black man in America is being a white man in America. I mean that we are living in a segregated society, which does not mean, as people imagine, that it is simply I who am segregated. It means you are, we all are, and we cannot talk to each other because of the force of social custom and the tyranny of the Southern oligarchy. When I talk about economics, therefore, I am trying to suggest to you, to all of you, that all of you begin to think in very concrete terms. For example, Birmingham is a monstrous city indeed. But Birmingham is not really any worse than New York. There is no place. There is not one square inch of American soil in which a black man can be considered to be free. And if that is so for black men, that is true for all of us. <laughs> New York is not a segregated city by an act of God or by accident. It is a segregated city partly because a vast number of people and a vast complex of interest make a tremendous profit on the blood of black boys and girls, on the continued imprisonment and the continued demoralization of one-tenth of our population. Now, if it is so that Harlem exists principally for the benefit of people who like money, then it is also possible that one can begin to organize in the ghettos of this nation a massive civil disobedience campaign. And let me, explain, let me spell out a little bit, I want to be as precise as I can, of what I mean by that. I was born in Harlem. I was raised in Harlem. And indeed, as long as I live, I will never be able really to leave Harlem. As they say, you can take the child out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the child. I know, therefore, what, what rents one pays for what. I know what you pay for meat, cabbage, clothes, life insurance, theft insurance, fire insurance, and all of this money feeds, ladies and gentlemen, helps to feed the oppressor who uses the money to keep you in jail. Now isn't it worth considering what one might be able to do 
if instead of meekly submitting to this species of rape, one decided that instead of paying the rent, one refused to pay the rent. And when it is said that it is illegal to pay the rent, the answer is it is immoral to charge rent for the houses in which we live. I think that this, for example, among other things, begins to force the economic structure to deal with the problem which will destroy us if we do not deal with it. Because no matter what I may feel, for example, about nonviolence, or no matter how I may feel about how people, people should treat each other, and no matter how I try to live my life, I'm also aware, and I must be aware, that most people are not really interested or do not dare perhaps, in any case do not, act toward others as they would like to have others act toward them. And therefore, there is something ultimately futile and terribly dangerous with having so many Negro boys and girls and men and women in the streets so long. I know that this peculiar country has admired the doctrine of nonviolence for six or eight or nine years and has applauded all those children and all those ministers and all those men and women who went to jail, who got beaten with chains and with hoses, and who were attacked by dogs, has admired them and has done nothing whatever to help them. And first, And furthermore, not only that, which would be bad enough, intends to keep on admiring them and sending them to jail and doing nothing whatever to help them. Now, I think it is time to blow the whistle. I think it is time to begin to deal with the power structure. We're not dealing with white people. It's not a matter of what white people think about you or what, even what they think about themselves. What one has to do is examine and overhaul the system, the system which creates it and perpetuates it. It is very important parenthesis, I think, that I probably ought to make. One's got to point out, I think, that in this country, since the McCarthy era, and it's one of the reasons for our absolutely, absolutely spectacular impotence, anyone who mentioned the word economics was promptly given a ticket to Moscow. <laughs> I think it is beneath me to say that I am not a communist. I think it's beneath the nation, and very dangerous for the nation, to raise this peculiar red herring the moment one begins to deal with things as they are.
Now, the nation which admires the doctrine of nonviolence has never, in my experience, and never as far as I know in its history, which began, if you remember, in Europe, admired nonviolence before. One of the myths of the English is they would never be slaves. One of the reasons Gary Cooper was such, and Humphrey Bogart were such powerful movie stars, they always had a gun. It's only when a black man says that he might go out and find himself a gun that the country becomes Christian for the first and only time. Now, speaking for myself, and trying as best I can to discharge what I take to be my responsibility to everyone in the streets, including me, I don't want to see any more blood. Nobody's blood. My God. You know, if we could end the nightmare tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, I could die, you know, in peace. But in fact... The nightmare will not be ended tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. And the nation which has admired these boys and girls and men and women overlooks the fact that a boy who was, let us say, 17 in 1955 has now spent eight years in the streets, is probably under a doctor's care for being beaten half to death by the power structure, ladies and gentlemen, not simply by some idle policeman. Policemen know who they're working for. And by this time, the boy and his wife and his children are very nearly at the end of their rope and are about to crack. This is why it is so important now to try to be precise about what it is that we must do. It is impossible, all my liberal friends and critics to the contrary, it is absolutely impossible for any Negro in this country to be fitted into the structure as it now exists. That is not a possibility. One must be willing to take upon oneself the, the responsibility of examining and changing the structure so that it becomes more human for everybody. What the Negro's friends pretend, and I'm sorry, baby, but with friends like that, you don't need no enemies, you know. <laughs> what the Negro's friends pretend is that all the Negro wants is just another Cadillac. He wants to get to be just like Eisenhower. Well, I, speaking for myself, would rather cut my throat than suppose that my forefathers bled and suffered and died for this, in this country in order to become yet another blank mediocrity. What we can do, and again, if you remember what I tried to say about economics, and I talked about the landing of the track and what would have happened if we hadn't lined the track, if you think about the myths that American white people have created about American black people, you begin to have some notion of the weight black people have 
in white people's consciences. It was never true, for example, that I came here wanting to rape nobody, you know. And in fact, I very rarely carried a knife. And I'm not a whole my liquor. But the myths to which one is subjected are the most terrifying symptom of the emotional and spiritual and sexual poverty and the panic of the American people. If one is aware of this, then one recognizes, I think this is a valuable suggestion, that it is not the Negro who is in jail. It is white people who are in jail. When white people can produce, when this white republic can produce, in the streets of Birmingham, for example, children who can do with those, what those black children did, then we may be beginning to approach equality. I think the other reason, and perhaps the most important reason, that I'm throwing the suggestions out to you tonight, is that in this country, every black man born in this country, until this present moment, is born into a country which assures him in as many ways as it can find that he is not worth the dirt he walks on. Every Negro boy and every Negro girl born in this country until this present moment undergoes the agony of trying to find in the body politic, in the body social, outside himself, herself, some image of himself or herself which is not demeaning. And if you doubt me, you check out your textbooks and Hollywood. To name only those two things. Now many, indeed, have survived and at an incalculable cost. And many more have perished and are perishing every day. If you tell a child and do your best to prove to the child that he is not worth life, it is entirely possible that sooner or later the child begins to believe it and acts on it. It is one of the reasons, if I may be rude, that in every ghetto in this country, Saturday night is so dangerous night among Negroes. They let it out with each other because they are too intimidated by what we still refer to as man. And what I am trying to suggest is that we have the power to force the country to change its image of us and we can do this by proving to ourselves and to the country what we can do for ourselves 
We don't need yet to become the president of General Motors. We simply need to call the country on the common disaster and they cannot put 20 million people in jail. You're listening to James Baldwin on Voices of Pacifica. You can obtain a copy of this program and other public radio programs by calling 1-800-735-0230. Something happens to a person, as I know we all know, when he has achieved his first breakthrough. All I know about my own life, for example, is that I've been scared to death for 39 years and six months. (laughs) And all I know about fear is that if you're afraid of it, walk toward it. No Negro in this country and no citizen of this country who aspires to create this country has any reason whatever to be afraid of, let us say, for example, Senator Eastland. We must make, can I say, the establishment afraid of us. And it is perfectly true, you know, I'm speaking only for Jimmy Baldwin again, that everybody in the country, in Washington, was terrified of the very idea of a march on Washington, and, did, and can scarcely be said to have embraced it until they realized they couldn't call it off. Now, if we begin to assess our real weight, our real potential, in the light of our common danger, we can get through this. We can win. We can turn the country into something which makes it a little less difficult to become a man. It is very hard to be black and grow up in this country. Manhood, as a friend of mine said, is a very dangerous pursuit for a black man. But I beg you to observe that it has also become a very dangerous pursuit for a white man. That is one of the reasons for Birmingham. It is not possible that all those people in that city really believed or really believe that they have the right to slaughter children. They don't believe that. They're afraid to speak. One of the reasons they are afraid to speak is that the standards by which we live, black and white, north and south in this country, are unlivable standards. It is not important to be safe. It is not important to get a car. It is not important to make it It is important to become a man. And this is what we have forgotten. And that is one of the reasons that the caliber of our political representatives has become 
one of the mockeries of the 20th century. There is, my friends, really, a point at which one has to say, I will not choose between the lesser of two evils. There is no such thing as a lesser of two evils. If the political machines in Washington and elsewhere in the nation cannot throw up better material than Mr. Goldwater, Mr. Nixon, Mr. Kennedy, and so on down an extremely dreary line. <laughs> then perhaps we, the people whom these dreary people are supposed to represent, ought to find a way of being represented. We are not, are we, at the mercy of our political institutions. If we created them, we are responsible for them. We have the right and the duty to overhaul them, to change them. We are not always so helpless that Senator Easton has to stay there forever. <laughs> Who said so? Isn't it? A scandal that in a civilized nation, the death of six children should be met by the cynical, I repeat, cynical appointment of a football player and ex-general. go in any Birmingham barber shop and talk to anybody. I dare them. And I think that commission, the appointment of that commission, the very notion, and the apathy with which the country has greeted it, proves my point. We have no right to allow the death of six children and our common disaster and our common crisis and our moral crisis to be met in this way. It proves, if anything does, that the terms of negotiation must now be radically changed. One cannot negotiate with the representatives of one's oppressor. One must, really, one must force the administration to recognize that as long as Eastland holds his office, is a Democrat, 
No one who wants a free country can vote the Democratic ticket. And as long as Goldwater holds his place, no one who wants a free country can vote the Republican ticket. It is time to let the nation know that the death of my child, I as a black man, and the spiritual death of your child, you as a white man, cannot be met by sending down a commission to find out what happened. We know what happened. <laughs> what we have to do is prevent it from happening again. And in order to do that, one doesn't beg the Birmingham City Fathers for a truce. You use whatever weight you have to force them to recognize your presence in that city, in that state, and in this country as a man. No matter what it costs, who? I want to say two more things and I will leave you. One of them is, it's very important to recognize that the economy of which we are so proud has very shaky foundations. It is very important to recognize that in any case, the economy as it now exists cannot, does not, and cannot supply full employment, that there are more white people out of work numerically than Negroes, and that the future does not look bright. And in my view, though I'm willing to be corrected, I think it is better to spotlight this condition now than wait and have it collapse and precipitate chaos. We can guide the avalanche, or we can try. We haven't got to surrender to it. And the last thing I want to say to you, to suggest to you, is that we in this country, black and white, do have in our hands at this moment an enormous and expensive opportunity. If we can think through our situation, if we can face it, we can do something which has not been done in the history of the world before. The terms of our revolution, the American Revolution, the terms of these, not that I drive you out or that you drive me out, but that we come together and embrace and learn to live together. That is the only way that we can have achieved the American Revolution. Now, if we can face this, and it involves facing a great many things, it demands that white people face the fact that I, for example, or any black person they will ever meet or, or have ever met, I'm not an exotic rarity, I am not, um, I'm not a stranger, I'm none of those things. On the contrary, for all you know, for all you know, I might be your uncle, your brother, your cousin.
among other things. One of the things that has happened here, and the pathology of the Deep South proves it, so does the pathology of the North, which dictates to them that they move out when I move in. Among other things which have to be excavated here is the fact that this long history is also the history of a love affair. One has got to face this. I'm no longer really black. Maybe I would like to be, maybe I'd like to go back to Sierra Leone, for example, that was where I came from. But I've been here a long, 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 long time. And I'm now a part of you. And you are a part of me. And the conditions of our maturity, which is our survival, is that we accept this fact and rejoice in it. If we could do that, we might open up and by the example of our own lives and bodies, a possibility that in the future, mankind all over the world will not find it necessary to blow each other up in order to settle a quarrel. Thank you. That was a talk by James Baldwin, given in New York City, September 25, 1963, less than a month after the March on Washington and 10 days after the infamous Birmingham church bombing that resulted in the deaths of six children. And uh, that was an address uh, by James Baldwin uh, in... Uh, 1963 in the aftermath of the Birmingham church bombing and two other subsequent uh, killings on that same day of African-American youth and an article that was published uh, in the Washington Post uh, on September 16th, uh, Dateline United Press International. It says a bomb hurled uh, from a passing car blasted a crowd of Negro church Youth uh, today killing four girls in their Sunday school classes and triggering outbreaks of violence that left two more persons dead in the streets. Two Negro youth uh, were killed in outbreaks of shooting seven hours after the 16th Street Baptist Church was bombed and a third was wounded. As darkness closed over the city hours later, shots crackled sporadically in the Negro section, stones smashed into cars uh, driven uh, by whites. And, of course, uh, we're going to examine even more in the episodes coming up uh, the 60 years old tragedy of uh, the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church and also other developments uh, that took place some six decades ago in uh, 1963. That is going to uh, conclude uh, our program uh, for today, uh, the Pan-African Journal. Worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, we've been broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit uh, on Saturday, uh, September the 9th, and the early morning hours of Sunday, September the 10th. If you'd like to have access to this program, uh, just go to our website at the Pan African Radio Network. Uh, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. 
If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the music of the legendary Hank Mobley. This is from an album entitled Another Workout. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
Mm-hmm.